following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be with you today and to open God's Word with you. And I'm also glad that the young people are here with us this morning. Uh, We enjoy having family as well. Uh, In uh, 1979, my wife Kathy and I left for Germany to spend the next 42 years of our lives ministering in that hemisphere. When we got there, it was Freya Varner's dad who picked us up, uh, and we stayed with them and watched their family grow, and ours did too. Uh, As of yesterday, we have eight grandkids, so we're happy for that. Initially, our uh, experience in the daily life in in Germany, uh, our foreignness was very obvious. Uh, Language was obviously a challenge, but we often wondered why we would walk into a store and shopkeepers would immediately speak English with us. I mean, we tried to dress like the Germans dressed. We hadn't even opened our mouths yet, but they recognized that uh, somehow we didn't fit in. Now coming back, we've been back almost two years. In October, it'll be two years we're back. We realize we don't fit here either. Uh, And I suspect that many, if not all of you, have experienced that to some degree. Uh, And for the kids, uh, as you enter a school year, maybe you're going into a new class maybe a new school. You might even have moved at some point in your life, and you're wondering, will I fit in? Will I be dressed like the other kids are dressed? Uh, Maybe you have gone to a a party, and you got there, and you realized you weren't dressed like all the rest of them, and you're wondering, do I? I don't fit in. In our final 17 years in Europe, we worked largely with internationals. Uh, We were living in Germany just across the border from Basel, Switzerland, uh, working with an international church, and some of them really experienced being out of place. They didn't look like the Swiss. They didn't speak like the Swiss. They had different cultural ideas, and a few did not react well to that. Coming back here and then during the time we worked with nationals, we saw a flip side to that. And that was, uh, particularly here in the Midwest, believers have tended to become comfortable in their culture, Uh, at least with much within their culture. I'm sure the older ones here are familiar with that uh, proverbial frog in the water, but if the younger ones are not, there's this account, I'm not sure if anybody's ever tried it, but if you throw a frog into hot water, it jumps right out. But if you throw it in the cold water and you let it slowly warm up, the frog will just stay there until it gets cooked and dies. Uh, And and that's a danger. If you're in a culture which slowly is changing and you're just accepting the things that are there, not realizing what's happening, it can be very dangerous for you. So we have two 
two contrasts. Can you be too comfortable in your culture or can you be uh, thankful that you don't fit in? I would like to suggest uh, something that may go against what you think and that I believe God is showing mercy when he allows you that feeling of not fitting in. Whether it's going to school at a new school, new classroom, or whether you're taking on a new job or you've moved somewhere and you wonder, do I fit in? And you see, well, maybe I don't. And it could just be for a simple thing. That's a reminder that as a believer, we aren't supposed to fit into a fallen, sinful world. It's a revelation of God's mercy to us. It's an act of mercy that he's reminding us that we don't fit here. The Apostle Paul speaks a lot about the mercy of God, frequently in his letters. And I'd like to look together this morning at Ephesians chapter 2, just a couple verses, 4 through 7 in chapter 2. And I would invite you to look at that with me. So either scroll on your device or turn your Bibles to that. Paul's letter to the Ephesians has a number of themes woven through it. To, that reveal the purpose or purposes of the letter. There's the identity of believers, especially of the Gentiles, that they're in Christ now. There's the greatness of the believer's calling. Chapter 1 really speaks on that. Uh, there's the unity that exists between believers, the church. The, book, the letter to the Ephesians is a great letter to talk about the church and what, what it means to be united. And then there's the way that should work out in our lives. The first three chapters are laying a doctrinal basis. The last three starts out in chapter 4, verse 1. I urge you to walk worthy of the manner of your calling. That's the first three chapters. And then he develops what worthy walk is in our lives. Chapter 2 develops the position which a believer has both individually. That's the first half of the chapter. And together as a group of believers in the second half of the chapter. And if you've come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've confessed your sin and turned to Christ for forgiveness because of his death on the cross, and as we remind ourselves of that this morning with the bread and cup, then you've experienced what can only be described as a radical expression of God's grace. There's a radical change in who you are, a radical experience with Jesus Christ, and and a contribution to the eternal glory of God, which we can only describe as being a radical contribution. I also believe that as you grasp more and more this grace of God, you will change how you view being in the world how you view your struggles in the world, and even the challenges of not fitting in. Or, in the case of too many, being too comfortable in the world. As we look at these few verses, 4 through 7, I think you'll see uh, at least three evidences that reveal how radical this expression of God's grace and mercy is. And the first is the contrast between God's character and man's natural character. Look with me at at beginning at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We see in these verses, and it will reflect back in the first three, a contrast between the goodness of God's character and man's character. Paul writes that he is, God is rich in mercy. He loved us with a great love. And he has immeasurable riches of grace in kindness. Now mercy is just giving help to those who need it. It's showing favor when the opposite is deserved. And this mercy is God's character. If you go back in the Old Testament, you'll find this repeated again and again. When, when Moses asked God, reveal yourself, and God describes who he is, it's his mercy that comes out. Psalm 118 says his loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 136 repeats this phrase in every one of its 36 verses, his mercy endures forever. And that implies here the reason for his actions toward us. It's his character. He's a God of mercy. And so he is merciful to us. It says he loved us with a great love. Loved us in a past tense. He's loving us now. But here Paul says he loved us. Why does he talk about loving us in the past? Because he loved us while we were still sinners. The Apostle John writes about this in 1 John chapter 4. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, a satisfactory offering or sacrifice for our sin. Paul writes about to the book of, in the letter to the Romans, but God shows his own love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is love. Doing something for us that we didn't deserve, what we needed, when we were still sinners in rebellion against God. And he has immeasurable riches of grace and kindness. It's interesting, verse 5, by grace you have been saved. It's as if he's anticipating verses 8 and 9, what's coming up, and he can't wait to get to this. Verses that you may have learned at many times uh, growing up, and I'm sure in your children's program, for by grace are you saved through faith. Not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He can't wait to get to there. By grace you've been saved. This is God's character. He is rich in mercy. He loves with a great love. He has immeasurable riches of grace. But what about man? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, dead in our transgressions, God's character is good and great. Children learn often a, a wonderful theological prayer. God is good, God is great, and we thank him for our food. That really summarizes the character of God. He's good and he's great. But what makes it so radical, what he's done for us, is the contrast to man. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Just ask, how many, how many of you accepted Christ as a child? As a young person? Quite a few here. Great. Have you ever wondered, well, what type of uh, 
of a testimony do I have? I don't, I don't have that type of testimony of where I was saved out of drunkenness or drug abuse or wasn't saved in prison. Uh, and you say, well, I wish, maybe I wish I had a great testimony. You have a tremendous testimony because you were dead and are now made alive. How many can say they were resurrected? You have been resurrected with Christ. What a tremendous testimony. As we look back, he explains what it means to have been dead in our trespasses in the first three verses. You were dead in the trespasses of sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We lived according to a different authority, by a different standard. We lived according to the ways of the world. We lived under the dominion of Satan. That's what's around us. I usually don't bring my phone, unless I'm recording a message, I don't bring my phone up. But if you have a smartphone, do you realize what you're carrying in your pocket? This is a channel for Satan. You're going, oh, come on, it's, just, it's great, I can make phone calls. As soon as you open up the internet and the web, you are inviting the influence of Satan into your life. You have to be so cautious. And kids, if your parents restrict you on your phone, it's for your good. Uh, because that's where we are in this world. It's under the dominion of Satan. He wants to control everything that you hear and see. We live for a different purpose in our lives. He says it was to satisfy our selfishness, to follow our sinful desires and thoughts. So we come into a meeting, and what we do is I turn my phone off because I don't want to be interrupted. But how many people can't wait? They, they, they don't even want to turn their phone off because they don't want to miss anything. Well, if some, well I'll just put it on buzz in case, in case my friend comes through. I've got to find out what my friends are doing. What is controlling you at that point? It's your own desire, not the concern for the people around you. Well, will that distract them if my phone goes off? What, what will they think if I'm looking down at my phone rather than if I'm listening to them? That's following the desire. That's part of why Christ had to come and die for us. Because it says we were carrying out the, the desires of the body and the mind. We lived under a different destiny. Children of wrath, by nature, objects of wrath. We were headed for eternal punishment, and you and I deserved it. And the longer we lived in rebellion, the more we reaped in this world the just results of our rebellion. And we might think of the big things, you know, we didn't end up, I didn't end up in prison because of murder or drugs or... But you go through the list of what Paul's write down, and right up in that list with murder, there's gossip and disobedience to parents. Oh, that's right in the list of things that 
required that Jesus die for our sins. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And this begins three actions that, that are really important. But I'd like you to just stop. Before we look at those, stop and think a moment of your present life. Do you believe that God would have demonstrated such great mercy in saving us only to leave you as his child to endure unnecessary suffering that has no purpose? Would he have, you know, Paul writes, he, did, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for his all, will he not also, not with him, graciously give us all things? So, when we go someplace, when you go into a classroom or a party and you say, oh, I don't fit in here. I feel bad about this. Or when we ended up in, in Germany saying, we don't fit. Or coming back and we don't fit here. This is, this is part of God's good purpose for us. He's not going to have given his son for me and then let me suffer something unnecessarily. It's for my good. And I can respond in thanks. It's a show of mercy. Because he is rich in mercy, and he shows it to us. So why suffer? Now, Edward Welsh says, suffering turns us toward God more than comfort ever does. How many times when you're feeling good, do you say, wow, thank you, Lord. This is really great. I'm feeling good. Compared to how many times when you're feeling bad, you say, oh, God, get me out of this. <laughs> We should be doing it when we're feeling comfortable and feeling good. But what gets our attention? It's the suffering. It's the difficult times. On the other hand, as we look at that being too comfortable, maybe we should be praying more often for God's mercy. Lord, I've become comfortable. Have mercy on me and show me that I don't belong here. In Germany, in those early days, we often felt worse than a child. I say worse because we had adult bodies but couldn't speak as well as a three-year-old. Uh, but that's okay to feel worse than a child. A child in an adult body because it's actually worse than that. When it comes to measuring up to God's standard, we don't even measure up to a three-year-old in an adult body. We need God's, God's grace, and He is rich and mercy. And it comes down and it begins to tell us what he has done for us. He has made us alive together with Christ, resurrected us together with Christ, and seated us together with Christ in the heavenlies. Made alive is obviously in contrast to being to be dead. Man without Christ is spiritually dead. Mankind is by nature separated from God. He turns away from God. Paul writes, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that seek after God, Romans chapter 3. And to be made alive is to be made spiritually alive. The believer is no longer separated from God. The believer is drawn to God, has an open heart toward God, desires God, because the work of God in Christ in that believer is doing that. So you have to ask yourself the question, are you experiencing life in Christ? Are you, are you alive? 
Do you desire God now? Before we didn't. Now we should be desiring God. Do you, do you have an open heart? Do you come to God's word and say, well, God, sh- show me yourself. Show me more about the way I should be living. How can I please you? Can we really pray the prayer that the Lord gave to his disciples? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Can we pray? Lord, whatever you want, your will. I want your will in my life, no matter what it means. That's life in Christ. And he has resurrected us together with Christ. Now, if you're thinking, there might be some questions that come up with that. At least two challenges. What's the difference between being made alive and being resurrected? Is is he saying the same thing twice? I don't think so. Uh, Elsewhere, it's used in a very similar fashion. That you're resurrected means you're made alive. But he distinguishes here, we're made alive together with Christ and resurrected together. And it's in the past tense. Isn't the resurrection something in the future? Well, yes, the bodily resurrection is coming. Well, what is he talking about then that we've been resurrected with Christ? Well, fortunately, I think he's already explained it to us back in chapter 1. In part of his prayer of thanks in verses 16 to 21, he says he wants them to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Do you see the combination that's coming here that we find in chapter 2 as well? Raised together and seated together with him. To be raised together in this context is to be so joined with Jesus Christ that the power that resurrected him is now available to you in order to live godly. We don't have to do this in our own strength. Not only did he make us alive, he made available the the power that resurrected Christ so that you can live godly. So what do we do? Well, we turn to him and ask for that. We don't try to do things in our own power. Now, there are many good things that we do. You're here this morning. It's a good thing. We're commanded to come and gather together. But don't think just walking through the door is sufficient. It's not just being present, warming a pew seat somewhere that says, well, you know, now, now I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Now I'm growing. No, rely upon the power that God has given. As you come, pray, as was prayed this morning. Lord, open up my heart to hear the word. Open up my heart to those around me. Work in me. Use my time here for what you intended it to be. Reading the Bible. I admit sometimes I get into reading and my eyes can go over the line and it's really, you know, I can say I read it and get at the end and it's like, uh, what, what, did I, what did I just read? Reading the Bible is important. You want to read God's word. But you should start and say, Lord, open my heart. Keep me conscious of what's being written there. Show me what you have said. Rely upon the power because you have been raised together with Christ. And the power that raised him is available for you by his spirit to live godly.
Now I'll add to that the fact that in Christ, the believer is seated together with Christ in heavenly places. Just a, a way that Paul is saying, in heaven. Now we're not there physically yet, and it's not denying a future resurrection of the believer. Jesus talks about that in John chapter 14. You know, he's, he's going to come back and take us so that where he is, there we may be also with him. We're looking forward to that. But in the meantime, we are also seated together with Christ. What, what does that mean? Well, again, going back to that passage in chapter 1, it continues, he is seated, God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Well, what that's saying is Satan no longer has dominion. Remember, that's the first three verses. You lived under the dominion of Satan. Not anymore. You're seated with Christ. And Christ has all authority over all dominions and power, over all power. Satan, Satan has no authority over you anymore. So, is there reason to fear the powers of darkness? Well, yes and no. <laughs> Peter writes, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You better watch out. But, John writes, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And Paul says, well, put on the whole armor of God then, so that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. So should you fear Satan? Well, if you're not submitting to Christ, yes, fear him. He's out to get you. But if you're submitting to Christ and growing in Him, you've got all you need to stand against Satan. Fear the powers of darkness when you're not submitting. But when you rush to God, when you walk by the Spirit, you confess your sin, you turn from sin, you draw near to God, and we're told Satan will flee from you. And all of this, just a reminder, there's one mediator, he says, of God's grace. We are made alive together with Christ, resurrected with Christ, seated together with Christ. It's all in Christ Jesus. That's the only reason we have these things. There's no other one. Only by His grace can we come to God. If you experience not fitting in in some way, you shouldn't fit in to a sinful, fallen world. But if it's just a, a social thing that you're not fitting in, let it be a good reminder that this world is not our home. We're just passing through. Heaven's our home. With Christ, where we are seated with Christ. But there's one more evidence of revealing how radical the nature of God's grace is. You get to contribute to the glory of God for all eternity. God is great. I mean, that prayer is really good. God is great. God is good. He, he is infinite. His grace is immeasurable. But if you're a child of God, one day, for all eternity, you get to show God's grace. 
so that, verse 7, in the coming ages, it's talking about eternity, he might show the immiserable, immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's grace and mercy was not visible before he created the world. There wasn't any need for grace. It's not even visible in the creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. We know of his existence. We know of his power in creation. But grace and mercy only becomes visible when he has to extend it to fallen man. And so when you have come to God through Jesus Christ, confessing your sin, and become a child of God, you get to show his grace and mercy for all eternity. Our job isn't done in this, in this world. He has a job for us for all eternity, showing that we are works of, of his grace. And that calls for you and me to have an eternal perspective and a divine perspective. It's not about us. We might think our salvation is about us. I mean, we, we certainly benefit from it. <laughs> but it's for God and for his glory. It's not limited to now. It's not limited to the present. And so we have to ask ourselves, does it matter to me? Does it matter to you whether God gets the glory for what he's done? You know, think about it's something further than, than the screen of your, of your smartphone or the end of the service wondering what's for lunch or the end of, a, of the summer, oh, summer's over. Oh, summer's over. It's depending upon whether you're a parent or a child. Uh, end of your working career. I mean, you noticed among the brothers in harmony, there's quite a bit of white hair and <laughs> no hair. Retirees, you know, think beyond retirement. You have to think beyond the end of this life. Think for eternity. It's not about us, not primarily about the time between the cradle and the grave. And that should affect how we live today. God saving the believer in Christ is a much more radical expression of his grace than we often acknowledge. If you make your sinfulness to be less than it is, less than make, meaning that you're dead and separated from God under his wrath, then you are diminishing God's mercy and grace. Jesus said to the one who much is forgiven, loves much, so the, the more you realize how sinful you are, the more you will respond in love to the Lord Jesus. If you call a lie, oh, it's just a little white lie, you have diminished not only his sin that required the death of Jesus Christ to forgive it, but you're diminishing God's grace and mercy. Kids, if you roll your eyes at your parents, oh, you, just, you kept your mouth shut, you didn't say anything back, but you know, they asked you to do something and you just go, oh. <laughs> Proverbs, by the way, has a word about that. Proverbs 30, verse 17. Uh, it says the birds will pluck your eyes out. But, you know, <laughs> parents, you might want to note that verse. Uh, you are diminishing God's mercy and grace because that's sin. And that is something that required Christ to die for you to be forgiven. Men, if you take a glance at pornographic material 
And you just say, well, it was just, it was just quick. You've sinned. You've committed adultery in your heart. It required the death of Jesus Christ. If you excuse it, you're excusing God's mercy. Limiting that, or not limiting, making it smaller. If you excuse a harsh word and say, well, I'm just tired. Oh, it's that time of the month. You know, you got you to gotta give me some. If you've, Paul says, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only that which gives grace. Diminish your sin and you diminish God's mercy. When you recognize how great the debt, how vast the separation is, how lost we are without Christ, you begin to understand his grace. He says it's immeasurable. (laughs) So we just begin the immeasurable riches of his grace. If you don't look beyond today, beyond this earthly life, you are diminishing the purposes of God's grace. It seems like difficulties best get our attention. I'm personally thankful for the last couple years. The way changes in our culture have occurred so rapidly that believers are waking up to the fact we don't belong here. I could never have imagined 10 years ago what's going on in the world today. That's good. The water has gotten hot. Jump out of it. Don't let it heat up until you're hurting. If you have become comfortable in a system under the dominion of Satan, if you've been lured into pursuing the desires of a sinful heart and feel comfortable with that, plead for God's mercy. Ask him to show you that, reveal that to you. And let the common struggles of not belonging be a reminder that we don't belong. This world is not our home. Heaven is our home with God in Christ. Remember that everyone who has come to God through Jesus Christ has a home in heaven, is at home in heaven now, seated with Christ by the incomparable immeasurable riches of God's grace. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the riches of your grace in Christ. Lord, it's so easy to become comfortable in this world. Thank you for the difficulties that you have sent that remind us that we do not belong here, but we belong with you. We are under a new dominion. We belong to the kingdom of of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we look forward to when he returns and takes us to be with him. Help us to live alert to the dangers, aware of the ways in which we can appropriate your your grace, asking for the power that you have made available in Christ to live in a way that's pleasing to you and that gives us, at the same time, the greatest joy and peace that we can experience on earth. We thank you for that and praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com 
and click the Contribute tab.